0: Thank you everyone. Uh, Tonight's topic is a complex one and it's an important one because mostly what we've seen these last few years is this rise of nationalism around the world and it's important for us as Americans and participants in global society to understand why and what we need to know about it, its history, where it's been and why it's coming back again now. Our speaker tonight is Jed Willard. He is the Director of Global Engagement at the FDR uh, Foundation at Harvard. He works on a number of issues, including, I mean, this is how wide-ranging <laughs> you know, Jed's experience is and what we're talking about, but anything from cl- uh, climate change to um, disinformation campaigns to, most importantly, engaging citizens and understanding these important topics of our time. So please welcome Jed Willard. Hello everyone. Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming out here tonight. Um, I really appreciate your interest in this topic. Uh, it's something that, uh, that we do focus on both in terms of uh, organic nationalism and uh, nationalism-friendly ideologies that might be imposed from uh, foreign lands. Tonight I'm going to uh, focus on history, the history of nationalism, uh, and I'm also going to focus on Europe. And this is because uh, I hope that during the discussion period we can move to uh, more current events and be more America-focused. Since we're living now and we're in the United States, let's talk about something a little bit uh, different. Uh, I'll also be talking about the experience of nationalism in the West Uh, because nationalism is a Western idea. Now, nationalism has played a a very meaningful role in the rest of the world, uh, especially in the the second half of of the last century, but it looked very, very different. And I'll I'll touch on it briefly with one slide, but I'm really going to be focusing on the history and present of nationalism in the West. And then finally, one last introductory note. Uh, Most of this presentation is fairly pessimistic, Uh, I do promise a little light of optimism at the end, so bear with me and and hold out and and I'll I'll give you something nice to to finish with. Okay, so I'm going to begin tonight with my theses. This is what I hope you walk away from this talk uh, uh, believing, or at least understanding. Nationalism was invented. Nationalism is not some eternal Thing. It is not necessarily the guiding light of human polities. Nationalism was invented relatively recently. Uh, if nationalism was not a thing in the 1600s, nationalism is something that came to, to, into being in a modern world. Nationalism has evolved over time, and that's a big part of what I want to share with you this evening, and it continues to evolve today. So nationalism has looked very differently even though the underlying themes sometimes painfully remain the same. Nationalism has sometimes been used for good. And I will touch on some good things about nationalism. Uh, More often though, nationalism has been used for evil uh, from a liberal point of view. And my last uh, uh, introductory note, uh, I'm using the dictionary definition of liberalism. So I'll be talking about liberals, liberalism, liberal this, liberal that, Uh, for the next half hour and uh, I'm using literally the dictionary definition of the term which has very little to do with uh, Senator Warren, it has very little to do with progressive American politics, Uh, it has to do with the ideals of the enlightenment. It has to do with the valuing of the individual and the rejection of most or all things medieval. Okay, to begin. Who was that? You got him, the Sun King, right there. Uh, lay tat say him. Uh, so, in the in the, the 16 and 1700s, uh, much of Europe was ruled by absolute monarchs or monarchs who wanted to be absolute. The states of Europe, uh, the the various polities of Europe, were essentially the property of monarchs or clergy or minor nobles, depending on how small a polity you want to get down to. Uh, The the people who lived in these states were not citizens. They were subjects. Uh, There was no no nationalism. There was no concept of a a, a group of people who share a a kind of real or mythic relation having any say in their polity. These were rulers who ruled their subjects. and that's a very important starting point to understand nationalism and the world that it emerged in. But it's also important to point out that it was not always thus. Uh, if you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, things looked very differently. Uh, the 1700 isn't that far away from 1500. And in 1500, it's a bit of a stretch to really even talk about states. Uh, the subjects are still the property of these rulers, but it's a different world where the monarchs are not absolute. The monarchs are, uh, th- there are a number of, of entities, not individuals, to whom they have obligations. Uh, uh, guilds, uh, uh, other powerful uh, aristocrats, and, of course, the church. So going back in the Middle Ages, this was not the way that things were in Europe. However, by the time we get to the origins of nationalism, say uh, him. All right, so what happens in... Um, What happens in the 1700s? In the 1700s, nations don't exist, but states and borders and leaders do. So states, at least by the time of, let's use 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, states have borders and are considered sovereign. This is a a, a big deal. We still live in a Westphalian world where we're not supposed to interfere inside each other's borders, even though that's starting to to fray to a certain extent. Also in the 1700s, you have the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment, you're all familiar with it. Uh, For the first time, uh, uh, Westerners are are studying and expounding upon the importance of individuals as individuals, not as members of a group, with individual rights. Uh, The 1700s culminates in the French Revolution, uh, where the, uh, the, the, the folks living in France decide that they no, want, no longer want to be just subjects of the king and obedient to the nobles and the church, but rather they would like to have a different kind of system. Uh, eventually, this revolution leads to the, uh, the cutting off of the head of state, uh, literally, um, which is interesting. I mean, it's interesting from a number of points of view. was interesting to the king. Um, it, it poses a problem in a world where the state itself is the property of the monarch. You just killed the monarch. This was enormously shocking uh, to to all Europeans. I mean, so the question is, what made us a state was that we owed loyalty to this guy, and now he's dead, and we don't have a king. To whom do we owe allegiance? Now, quick jump. Over the Atlantic, uh, you know, not not the first time that someone had decided to create an enlightened state. Um, also in the uh, in the the 18th century, the uh, the Americans uh, we had our own revolution and we established a uh, a republic, uh, which uh, incorporated many many of the thoughts and ideals of the Enlightenment. Very fortunately, um, I'm again not going to talk too much about the United States because it's not particularly useful for a conversation on nationalism, or not really useful for a conversation about the history of nationalism. Because when the United States was created, it was, well, first of all, it predates nationalism itself, but it was not created as a nation state. If the concept of nation state had existed in the 1770s and 1780s, the United States wouldn't be a nation state. The Americans had no interest in being a nation state because they had come from all over the place and they had gathered here, and they uh, did not want to have a monarch. And if they wanted to come up with an idea of, well, don't most of us share an ethnic heritage? Well, yeah, but it's British. And we just revolted against the British. So ixnay on that. Uh, so it, Thomas Jefferson uh, famously remarked that he envisioned the United States as an empire of liberty. An empire of liberty. Uh, it is not a state. It is an empire because we have all kinds of different groups of people who have been brought together. So. Back to France. Subjects become citizens. Uh, The people of the French kingdom become, although they don't call it this yet, the people of the French nation. The power of the nobility and the clergy is removed with prejudice. Uh, There's also, especially in the 1790s and then moving into the Napoleonic period, a great deal of centralization uh, in France. Uh, The departments are laid out. Uh, uh, power is concentrated in the, in the metropole in, in Paris. Uh, weights and measures are standardized. Uh, hey, it's the metric system. Uh, and the, f- the, the, the subjects of the French king become citizens of France. This is a big deal. This is a brand new concept. They, they really run around calling themselves citizens, citizen this, citizen that. It's, it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, uh, move. And it leads to the coining of a term in 1798, nationalisme. The the French term for nationalism, which was the original term from nationalism, emerges in this period, 1798. Uh, It doesn't really become a standard English word until 1844, and we're going to get to why that happens not too long from now. So if you're a citizen, not a subject, what does that mean? Well, the the French, again, dig down into the Enlightenment, and they come up with the Declaration of the the Rights of Man, uh, the notion that individuals have these rights. That's what the Enlightenment taught us, that individuals simply by virtue of being a man, is the word they would use, um, simply by virtue of being a man, you are endowed with certain, as we say in America, inalienable rights. Um, it's, it's, It's very, very different from the medieval world, again, where no one had rights. There were obligations and there were loyalties, but not so much rights. So this very novel... Uh, uh, French French idea is then spread throughout Europe. First, uh, the, the panicked uh, local monarchs invade, um, and then there are a series of wars. Uh, uh, eventually, Napoleon uh, takes over, and the French essentially conquer Europe. Now, while they're conquering Europe, they're spreading this gospel of revolution. And here's another very important term, revolution. The revolution in Europe in the 19th century didn't refer to just the French Revolution. That was just the first one. Revolution was this thing that you either loved or feared that was going to sweep through our time period, the 19th century, uh, and change everything. Uh, And in some ways, it did. So, Napoleonic Wars end, you have the Congress of Vienna, the the surviving um, monarchies attempt to to, to restore uh, the the status quo from prior to the revolution, let's just go back to the 1780s and pretend that we didn't just have a generation of utter violence, Um, but it's too late, the cat is out of the bag. The revolutions continue uh, throughout the 1820s and the 1830s, from Paris to Poland, from Sicily to Prussia. They don't all look the same because the individuals who are leading these revolutions, the revolution, are revolting against very different uh, local uh, systems and local local situations. But they are generally anti-monarchy, anti-nobility, anti-clergy. They're anti the leftover authorities from the Middle Ages. And they're looking to replace the early modern order in the state with... What? what? What are they gonna replace it with? Well, this is where you really get the notion of liberal nationalism. The forces of liberalism and the forces of nationalism, I'm gonna go more into nationalism shortly, uh, are aligned in the second quarter of the 19th century. Uh, it's a revolutionary alliance between the messengers of the enlightenment who want parliaments constitutions, jury trials, the end of censorship, and of course the reduction of these traditional power bases, illiberal power bases. And it's combined with the notion of shared heritage. Why shared heritage? Well, there are a couple of reasons why liberalism and nationalism combine. Uh, And one of the biggest ones is that other than France England, Portugal, and in a different way, Sweden and Spain. Other than those countries, everywhere else is different. You know, in in France, it was relatively easy to say, we are no longer the subjects of the French king, let us be Frenchmen, because they had been members of the same state since the Middle Ages. The French kings spent hundreds and hundreds of years assembling France. Not too many hundreds of years before this happened, they spoke, France was full of people speaking very different languages. Someone from Brittany, someone from Provence, and someone from Paris would not speak the same language. Uh, They had had terribly divisive religious wars. Uh, France had been cobbled together through great amounts of struggle over time, as had England, as had Portugal, and then again, differently, Spain and Sweden. But that's it, that's it. Once you leave France, and you try to impose this idea of liberalism. Liberalism for whom? Citizens of what? If I'm no longer uh, uh, if I'm, I'm no longer uh, a subject of the bishop, whom who am I a subject of? What am I? Uh, this is a, uh, a map of um, of the uh, of the, the the German Confederation. It, showing you how all of these people who spoke German and may have in some ways identified as German, in that they could talk to each other. Uh, were not members of the same state. So if you were going to bring a kind of nationalism to Germany, you were going to have to do something very differently from what you did in France. Now, that's one model. That's the German and Italian model, where you have groups of people who speak the same language but live in different states. Further east, you have these transnational empires, uh, primarily uh, Russia and, and Austria. And the Russians and the Austrians, while the states were the property of the emperor they weren't at all ethnically homogenous. In fact, quite the opposite. Russia to a slightly more extent than than Austria. But they were very, very, very uh, uh, mixed up in terms of ethnicity. Uh, And so this notion of nationalism uh, joins with the notion of liberalism, and the call goes out for unity and freedom. Uh, So unity and freedom. Unity... Let's all come together as this united entity who speaks the same language and has the same heritage and perhaps the same culture. Uh, And inside this new entity, we can all be free individuals. It is a pipe dream. Uh, There is no reason why the nationalists who wanted ethnic homogeneity and the liberals who wanted individual rights and freedoms should have gotten along as they found out very soon. At the time, of course, they had the same enemies, and their goal was to free Europe of both domestic and foreign tyrants. Now, there's another reason why nationalism took off, and it has to do with Romanticism. Romanticism is the, uh, as you all know probably better than I do, it's a 19th century uh, cultural movement. Romanticism, to to the romantic, modernity, this world of proto-industrialization, people moving to cities, people moving across borders, uh, people overturning these, these ideas of privileges that we've had for eternity, that's scary. Modernity is scary. So we're gonna look to a simple, we pretend, agrarian past. We're going to celebrate tradition. We're going to celebrate our attachment to our lands. We're going to recognize that cities and proto-industrialization are, are scary and they destroy our sense of community. So we're going to look to create a new sense of community uh, within the nation, within this idea of a, a shared heritage that's linked to the land. We will invent myths. We will explore among the common men out in the fields and find what binds them together. And we're going to adapt these to create the nation as a kind of living organism, now, as you can imagine, if you're going to take a group of people and start making them believe that they are one single living organism, you are probably going to devalue the individual. But that didn't happen yet. Now, I, have, I said I was gonna say good things about nationalism. Romanticism, great art. It really <laughs> tapped into the emotions, it tapped into the, the these, these existing artistic traditions and, 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 and local traditions. Uh, wonderful art, wonderful music. My favorite orchestral music on Earth is from the Romantic period. So Romanticism, great for art, bad for politics. All right, so. Uh, back to uh, Germany. The goal in Germany and Italy of these liberal nationalists is to unite German and Italian speakers. Obviously, this is resisted by the local powers who are functioning as absolute or near-absolute monarchs in their own little zones and don't really feel like giving up that power. Meanwhile, over in Austria and other parts of Eastern Europe, the goal is national autonomy. Uh, And, of course, the liberals working with the nationalists, the goal is also national autonomy with individual freedoms within that new autonomous state. Okay, 1848, we're sitting in a building built in 1848, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, It's holding up. Uh, 1848, the cry goes out for unity and freedom and revolutions break out almost Europe-wide, starting in Paris, and the news just sweeps through like a social media viral video, uh, sweeps through Europe. Uh, and the revolution works. It works. The, 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 the powers that be, the, the, the monarchs and the dukes and the mini-princes, they back down. Uh, the, the, the Kaiser says, when his army says, eh, you know what, why don't you just leave Berlin and we'll just bombard it and kill all these rebels. The Kaiser says, no, 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 don't do it, and actually comes to his uh, balcony and they, some of the, the dead revolutionaries are brought into the courtyard and he takes off his hat and bows his head, refuses to give him a constitution. But the, the revolutions actually work all over Europe and especially all over, over Germany. Now, within about a year, something interesting and predictable happens. The revolutionaries realize they don't like each other. The peasants are thrilled to burn down the house of their landlord and get rid of all those records of the debts they owe, and that's it. Otherwise, they're embracing tradition. Uh, the workers, again, this is the, the, the begin, this is the industrialization period. The workers uh, are perfectly willing to riot for jobs and bread, but they're not really interested in these, these convoluted uh, uh, elitist enlightenment ideas. The artisans, that is the craftsmen, are extremely interested in helping out the the intellectuals at first uh, because they are actually quite afraid of these workers in the factories uh, uh, replacing them. They feel like they've lost privileges and they wanna get them back. Uh, Although they they quickly change their tune once the revolutions are successful and they feel that they haven't been given their due by the intellectuals. Meanwhile, the intellectual elites, the leaders of this liberal nationalist movement that has just overthrown a number of different governments are terrified of the rest of these guys because they wanna preserve their property they see in these masses revolting a a socialist threat, a proto-socialist threat. Uh, And so realizing that they actually don't like each other, the revolutions collapse, the the various traditional rulers who still have their armies simply march back into power, thousands of people are uh, imprisoned or exiled, and that is the end. It is a return to the old order. I hate slides that are full of text, so I've put all of my text into this one slide. Just get it. It's done. I really like this quote. Uh, I like it because I think uh, uh, John Stuart Mill really captured the 1848 moment. Uh, and also it's important because this is John Stuart Mill. You know, John Stuart Mill went on to continue to be a guiding light as liberalism continued to evolve over the rest of the 19th century. Uh, and evolved from the, the main way in which it evolved was uh, moving away from laissez-faire economics to one where the state could play a role in, in lifting people up—the kind of the predecessor of the, of the social safety net. So here's what Mill had to say. He was kind of embarrassed. It was all a really, really bad idea. The liberalism and nationalism uh, alliance uh, just wasn't workable, and probably wasn't workable from the get-go. Uh, next. Liberalism and nationalism then separate. They continue to develop and evolve as ideologies for ruling polities. They continue to evolve over the rest of the 19th century, Mill on the one hand. Uh, But as they separate, they increasingly represent different ways of imagining communities, different ways of imagining the sovereign state. There are exceptions. Here's Garibaldi. Uh, Mazzini and Garibaldi in Italy were actually both liberal and nationalist. Um, Polatsky in the Czech Republic, extremely successful at at tamping down uh, 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 nationalist uh, fervor and and maintaining uh, an interest in the the Enlightenment in in Prague. Uh, But by the later 19th century, nationalism has become effectively a tool of the conservatives. And why not? It's a really powerful way to consolidate the state. Uh, It's a way to get the regular people to buy into this idea that we have all come together the way the French did. We are a unified nation, we are a unified state, and we're loyal to our leaders. Nationalism is adopted and put to use by the big landholders, who are more often than not the traditional elites, nobles and clergy, uh, and also the industrialists, the big industrialists. Nationalism is especially popular in Germany because just as the liberals failed in 1848 to unite the nation, the Prussian militarists succeeded. The Prussian militarists won the battle that the liberals lost. And German intellectuals very, very quickly, for the most part, abandoned liberal ideas and become more militant than their equivalents in most other countries. So, nationalism becomes dominant throughout much of Europe, and it's also dangerous. Here's Bismarck. Uh, why is nationalism inherently dangerous? Well, by building this intense, semi- either semi fictional or fictional um, uh, in group, you are, of course, creating an out group. You're actually creating multiple out groups. One thing that nationalism very quickly generates is a hatred of foreigners. If we are all one family, then what, and what works, helps the family helps the family, then what hurts the family hurts the family, and what helps their family probably hurts my family. Uh, it leads to, predictably, anti-individualism, and then also it leads to a real fear of and mistreatment of minorities within the state. Because if the state is an ethnic nationalist state, these minorities do not belong, and they're probably just as dangerous as those foreigners. In fact, they are foreigners. The ideas of of expanding the nation uh, become deeply rooted, expanding in a military way. Uh, Prussia, of course, takes great advantage of this. The use of force, the idea of forcing out the weaker races because we, as the most important nation, the most viable nation, uh, deserve what those weaklings have. The militarism is reinforced by social Darwinist ideas. Uh, The idea that Uh, 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 nations or ethnic groups are and have been in constant competition the way that species, you could say, depending on your definition, between on your use of, of, of Darwin's theories, that species always have been. And that only the strongest survive, that's the way it always has been, that's the way it always will be, and that is a good thing. Once you embrace the social Darwinistic militarism of ethnic nationalism, you enter into a very interesting place. I'm going to quote verbatim, no more quotes on the screen. I'm going to quote verbatim the historian Eric Hobsbawm. Hysterically nationalist and xenophobic, idealizing war and violence, intolerant and given to strong-arm coercion, passionately anti-liberal, anti-democratic, anti-proletarian, anti-socialist, and anti-rationalist, dreaming of blood and soil and a return to the values which modernity was disrupting. That's Hobsbawm's uh, definition of the ethnic nationalists of the late 19th century and early 20th. Ethnic nationalism is incredibly powerful. It's so powerful that when World War I breaks out, ending a very long period of peace or near peace, there are massive celebrations in the capital cities. The young men come out singing and dancing. The girls are throwing them flowers. It's, a, it's war. It's war. We're finally going to war. We finally get to prove that we have value to the nation. Uh, there's um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with the, uh, the Shackleton Exped- Ex- expedition, which heads out to go in, uh, to Antarctica. Actually heads out right at the beginning of World War One. Well, the folks who are heading out with Shackleton to go to Antarctica, first of all, they say, well, are you sure you want us to go? The government says yes. Uh, As they're sailing south, one of these uh, uh, explorers writes to his dad as follows. Dear old dad, just a line before we sail. This is the last port before the south. We have had a very good time so far, and I think we shall do well. I hope to be at home again within 19 months, and if I can manage it, go straight to the front. What a glorious age we live in. That's nationalism at its purest. This individual's life goal is to risk his life for either glory or mayhem. The war was seen as the ultimate inverse of the liberal celebration, which also led to, in some cases, the isolation of the individual. Uh, Now, of course, he wasn't back in 19 months. Uh, They were trapped in the ice for years. Uh, When they did make it back, the war was still going on to everyone's surprise, and almost all of them did enlist. They did go to the front, and a lot of them died, having survived the horrors of Antarctica. World War I, uh, somewhere up to uh, 40 million casualties, many lost in pointless charges across no man's land. Uh, Average of 6,000 dead soldiers per day It's a triumph of irrationality and belligerence. After the war, many intellectuals rebelled against nationalism, seeing it as one of the causes of the horror and the carnage. But it turned out that this ideology was very powerful and very embedded in the European psyche. And then you add to that uh, the fear of Marxism after the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, in the 20s and then, of course, in the 30s, democracies fall across Europe. We see the introduction of a new form of nationalism, fascism. Fascism, amazingly, is able to be even more anti-individualist and anti-intellectual, which is an achievement. And then, of course, Nazism, uh, the ultimate expression of blood and soil ethnic nationalism, Uh, the utter rejection of the Enlightenment cosmopolitanism, the uh, absolute embrace of mythology and racism. World War II, somewhere up to 85 million casualties. So, finally, after World War II, nationalism is discredited in the West. Uh, The victorious powers uh, create the international liberal order in part, to keep nationalism from bringing us back to war again. Uh, you, have, uh, uh, you have Dumbarton Oaks. You've got uh, Roosevelt's uh, Atlantic Charter. You have this plan, really from the beginning of the war, people like Roosevelt are thinking about this, how can we stop this from happening again? How can we keep World War I that led to World War II from leading to World War III? What can we put into place? What non-national structures can we put into place that will keep us safe from this horror? Uh, so you end up with the European community, which later becomes the EU. Uh, you, end up with, uh, the, with, you end up with the GATT. You, eventually, you, you end up with the, with the World Bank, with, the, uh, with, with all of these, the, the IMF. All of these uh, international institutions and international uh, sets of international norms meant to keep us from falling back into this nationalist trap. Okay, briefly, nationalism in the rest of the world. So nationalism does persist in the form of anti-colonialism as the European uh, empires, uh, global empires, begin to disintegrate. But this kind of nationalism has extremely different uh, intellectual uh, uh, roots Um, uh, and also ethnic roots. Uh, One way to to sort of see the difference between the original European nationalism and the anti-colonial nationalism is to uh, look at the borders of the states. Uh, For better or worse, they're not drawn along tribal or linguistic lines. And to this day, we have these non-national nation states. So very different use of of nationalism. Um, So nationalism is greatly discredited uh, after the, the, between um, World War II and the end of the Cold War. So what happens next? What happened recently? Are we seeing a return now? of Western nationalism. Uh, Now, it's true of the past 10 years, people claiming to be nationalists have taken power in places like like Hungary and Turkey and Poland. We've seen nationalist influences, at least, in places like the United States, uh, the UK, and Italy. Uh, Is this a return of the old nationalism? Have we simply forgotten the lessons that we learned between 1848 and 1945 at great cost? I don't think so. I promised I'd be optimistic. I don't think so. Uh, And here's why. Nationalism between 1848 and 1945 was a philosophically consistent system for consolidating and running countries. Philosophically consistent system that was led by truly brilliant, if evil, men, all men. Uh, They literally conquered the world and created modernity. It's not a gimmick. But for Orban, it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick. And I'm going to try to tell you why I think that is. I don't think that modern nationalism is, that our current nationalism, our current nationalism fetish is actually a fetish with nationalism as I've been describing it. Uh, I think it's a failure of leadership. Uh, We have uh, an issue of primary versus secondary problems. And um, I'm going to give you some examples. But first, back to the Middle Ages. Back to the Middle Ages. All right, the Middle Ages were times of, there was some consistency, but there were also, during the Middle Ages, times of intense change and even peril, especially the 11th and the 14th centuries. Uh, Fear of social change as feudalism replaced the communal values of what we call the Dark Ages. Um, The seemingly intractable challenges, such as the Black Death, is a big one, uh, lead to scapegoating. So in the Middle Ages, when there were enormous social challenges or existential threats, what did people do? Well, they did what humans always do. They picked scapegoats to blame. Who did they blame in the Middle Ages? Jews, it's always the Jews, heretics, landless migrants, homosexuals, prostitutes, which basically means independent women, um, (laughs) and, of course, lepers. Now, of course, a lot has changed since the Middle Ages. In our current circumstances, uh, as we deal with massive social changes, disruptions, and challenges that we're not really sure how to face, we've picked an entirely new set of scapegoats. George Soros, atheists, asylum seekers, homosexuals, independent, okay, it's the same group. It's the same, it's exactly the same. Yeah, this hipsters thing—this, this actually is not a joke. Uh, in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, the anti-EU uh, slogans are: you know, the EU will make you gay. Uh, if you like the West, you must be into bicycling and being a vegetarian. I mean, it's—it's it's real. This is a real uh, uh, bias. Um. So, yes, scapegoats. The scapegoats obviously aren't the actual problem. They're a second order problem. These guys weren't responsible for the black plague and they're not responsible for the unequal distribution of the gains of globalization. And they're certainly not responsible for climate change. They're just scapegoats. Burning witches does not solve your problem. It doesn't, it never does. All it does is burn witches. So what do I think is going on today? Why do I think it's a gimmick? Okay, so we've got real issues. There are, in fact, real social and economic changes happening all over the West, all over the world. Uh, Asia really is on the rise. The Europeans are no longer dominant across the globe. Uh, We we are, in fact, empowering women and minorities. These are real. Um, Those social changes are real and need to be explained, and and they need to be dealt with and need to become accepted by the population, or if they are, in fact, negative, uh, somehow mitigated. There are also real-world challenges. Uh, The ones that I mentioned are the ones that I worry about most. Uh, the growing or perceived to be growing inequality, which has to do with globalization, we actually saw the exact same thing during the first period of globalization uh, back in the late 19th century, Uh, similar results. Uh, Climate change, while there are many nationalists who simply deny it exists, is going to exacerbate these tensions. When you run out of water, you get in-group, out-group really fast. and then there's also automation and artificial intelligence, which are going to very likely, very soon, eliminate entire classes of jobs. Now, all of these are hurdles that hopefully we can get over, but in the meantime, they are leading to real fear and real societal divisions. And when there's fear and there's societal division, you can take advantage of that by becoming a populist leader. You can just stoke fear and... and and. Stick your finger on those social divisions as much as you can. You can get some help from Vladimir Putin sometimes. You, this is how to be a populist leader. Meanwhile, to actually solve the social and economic, to get us through these these changes and these challenges, it requires authentic, thoughtful leadership. I have the great honor of sitting in FDR's chair every day. And it is... Um, it is amazing to me to think about how he was able to thread the needle between uh, the thread the needle of liberalism between fascism and communism. These weren't gimmicks, fascism and communism. They weren't idle threats. These were committed people who knew, who knew that their way of running governments was the future. Their way of ordering society was the future. They were going to win. It was going to be a thousand year Reich. And. Some people, not many, because remember, democracies across Europe fell. Uh, some people like Roosevelt and Churchill and, and, and other Brits, I don't want to give Churchill too much credit, were able to, um, were able to thread that needle and, uh, and take us through to the other side. So that's what I think is happening today. Uh, we've got unscrupulous politicians who are taking advantage of fearful voters and the tendency to scapegoat. This is not a coherent driver of the international order, as nationalism was. Powerful transcendent ideologies like nationalism build hope for the future, for some. They don't subsist solely on scapegoating. Again, keep in mind, these white nationalists conquered the world and invented the modern era. They weren't idiots. Of course, they did then tear themselves apart, along with their entire civilization in two wars, but there's that. And they were, at the time that they did this, they were supported by intellectuals and elites. Uh, The original support for the Nazis, just like the original support from the militaristic Prussians, was in the universities. Uh, Although the fascists perfected the mass movement, nationalism as a whole was an intellectual exercise. Today's nationalists fly the banner of nationalism, but they are pathetic as well as misguided. In doing so, I hope. Thank you.